0: So Proverbs 5, my son, be attentive to my wisdom, incline your ear to my understanding that you may keep discretion and your lips may guard knowledge. For The lips of a forbidden woman drip honey and her speech is smoother than oil, but in the end she is bitter as wormwood, sharp as a two-edged sword. Her feet go down to death. Her steps follow the path of Sheol. She does not ponder the path of life. Her ways wander, and she does not know it. And now, O sons, listen to me, and and do not depart from the words of my mouth. Keep your way far from her, and do not go near the door of her house, lest you give the honor to others and your years to the merciless strangers that uh, take their fill of your strength, and your labours go to the house of a foreigner. And at the end of your life you groan, when your flesh and body are consumed and you say, how I hated discipline, and my heart despised reproof. I did not listen to the voice of my teachers, or incline my ears to my, my ear to my instructors. I'm at the brink of utter ruin in the assembled congregation. Drink water from your own cistern, flowing water from your own well. Should your springs be scattered abroad, streams of water in the streets, let them be for yourself alone, and not for the strangers with you. Let your fountain be blessed. And rejoice in the wife of your youth. A lovely dear, a graceful doe, let her breasts fill you at all times with delight. Be intoxicated always in her love. Why should you be intoxicated, my son, with a forbidden woman and embrace the bosom of an adulteress? For a man's ways are before the eyes of the Lord and he ponders all his paths. The iniquities of the wicked ensnare him And he is held fast in the cause of his sin. He dies for lack of discipline. And because of his great folly, he is led astray. We now turn to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 5, verse 27. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. It was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that anyone who divorces his wife, except on the grounds of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery, and whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery.
1: Congregation, one of the uh, blessings, if you can call it that, of coming to Geelong is that you always have people that will advise you on how you should start sermons and messages. And if you have a son for the ministry, he keeps reminding me as well. And one of the things that um, I'm encouraged to do is to have a suitable example or illustration to begin with. And I've been racking my brain thinking about all the illustrations regarding this topic. And there are none that are good. There isn't anything that is good about it. In fact, they're all rather sad and upsetting. The reality is that there are very few families in our midst today that are unaffected by the sin of lust and divorce and adultery. And when the sin of lust is allowed to flower, it does great damage, not just to ourselves, but also to our loved ones, to families, and sometimes even to whole congregations. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus keeps raising the bar as far as obedience is concerned. Previously, He's been talking about the fact that we should not murder, and most of us here would say, "Well, we're not guilty of that." And then Jesus goes on and says, "Well, if you say to someone he's a fool, you're already in the you're already um, in danger of going into the fires of hell." So there's a new level of obedience required, and likewise here, Jesus again raises the bar. Jesus begins by saying. Do not commit adultery. You've heard that it was said. Do not commit adultery. But they and our society have moved a long way from that explicit prohibition. As is usually the case, sinful people quickly justify their sinful actions. One lady said to me that her adultery and subsequent divorce was because in the Old Testament men often had more than one wife. They often divorced their wives. So why couldn't she and have have a different husband? Another gentleman came up to me one day and justified his actions by telling me that since the Gospel is all about love, why should he remain with the person that he no longer loves? Why should he not be free to marry another? Both completely distort the biblical perspective on marriage and love. But we shouldn't be surprised because we are constantly bombarded with images of lust. You watch the TV comedies, the soap operas, other shows. They treat lust and adultery and sex before marriage even as the norm. Yet the sad reality is that when lust is allowed to flower, when it takes control, people are hurt and lives are broken. And as a result, our society now deals with the consequences of depression and brokenness and mistrust, unwanted pregnancies, sexually transmitted diseases. And the solution offered is not fidelity within marriage and abstinence outside of marriage, but safe sex or various contraceptive methods. And even in extreme cases, murder by abortion. There are no winners when adultery and divorce occurs, only damaged lives that need to be lovingly repaired. See, the Lord Jesus, by quoting the seventh commandment, probes the heart and motives that lead to adultery and divorce. In verse 28, he says, But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. See, lust is the problem here. And if not checked, it will inevitably lead to adultery and possibly divorce. I keep saying to young couples who I'm privileged to do some uh, premarital counselling with that God's design for marriage is best It's mentioned at least three times in Scripture, in in Genesis 2 verse 24. A man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife and they will become one flesh. That means exclusive loyalty. Husband, wife, and the nearest and dearest friend, second place. Lewis Smedes, a renowned Christian author, ethicist and theologian in the Reformed tradition, says, when two bodies are united, two persons are, are united, nobody can go to bed with someone and leave his soul parked outside. The soul is in the act. Intimacy of body and intimacy of soul go together in marriage. I think Paul also alludes to that in 1 Corinthians 6 verse 16 hence committing adultery or allowing lust to flower, committing adultery and sleeping around clashes with God's good design. And since men are more persuaded by seeing something, Jesus warns men against lustful eyes. doesn't mean that women are excluded. The Lord's warning applies to them as well. Now, that doesn't mean that we cannot appreciate God's good design. One pious young Christian man said to me once, single man, that when he looks at a woman, he looks from the neck up. What a load of rubbish that was. And I told him so. It is harmless and natural to notice that a woman is beautiful. Or that a man is handsome. Some more handsome than others. But that's the way God has made us. It's God's good design. Sure, it's in the eye of the beholder. But it's part of God's good design. But it's one thing to admire what God has made. It's quite another to have lustful fantasies that can lead to adultery and divorce. My dad said, oh, the rose, the rose, don't have to put it up, the rose picture. My dad said to me when I was younger, he said, John, you can admire a rose, but don't touch. It's prickly. It's prickly. It'll make you bleed. Adultery just doesn't happen. Jesus says it begins in both the heart and the eye. The heart moves the eye and the eye inflames the sinful heart. So men, be careful. Women, be careful. Righteous Job said in Job 31 verse 1, I have made a covenant with my eyes not to look lustfully at a girl. I dare say that some of us can take a leaf out of Job's book. Jesus faced the temptation to entertain lustful thoughts. He was tempted in every way, like we are. Yet he refused to fall into sin, even with his mind. Now we need to understand that it's not sinful to be tempted. We cannot prevent certain thoughts from entering our minds. Martin Luther said that we cannot stop birds from flying over our heads, but we can sure stop them from building nests in our hair. Likewise, we cannot keep impure thoughts from flashing into our minds, but we can refuse to allow them to take root. Not in our hair, but in our heart. Let's remember, like all of God's creation, sexuality is good. Sexual desire is proper and natural. Yet, like all good things, it must be used in the right way, in the right place, in the right time. And the right place is the commitment and safety of marriage. See, God blesses sexuality when it's surrounded by loving faithfulness between a man and a woman. We read that in, in Proverbs chapter 5. God wants to bless our use of His gifts so long as we use them in the right way. Even a vivid imagination is from God. But if we turn the imagination towards taking what does not belong to us, it corrupts the mind. And it can actually lead to misdeeds. And that's why Jesus warns against lust. And He... Jesus shows how serious it is when He says, if your right eye causes you to sin, in verse 29, gouge it out and throw it away. When you think about it, of course this is is an exaggeration because even with one eye, we can still lust and we can still sin and we can still commit adultery and we can still divorce. The sin lies, the root of sin lies in the heart, not in the sense organs or the limbs. But the point is that in Jesus' sight, this sin is terrible. Look what it says there in verse 29 to 30. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away for it. It's better that you lose one of your members than your whole body go into hell. I don't see many one-eyed people. I don't see many one-armed people. So if Jesus says it's better to go through life maimed than to enter hell whole, then we should shudder at the thought of sinning as much as we shudder at the thought of losing a limb or an eye. So when you come across something that causes you to be lustful, strive and live as though you have no eyes. Avoid books. Avoid magazines. And movies and websites that cause you to lust and to be tempted. Switch it off. Don't go to the news agency if you've got a a problem with that. Don't. If a hand or a foot tempts us to sin, we should act as if we've had, that that we haven't got any. Refusing to walk towards that which tempts us and by refusing to touch the source of the temptation. And if you feel the sin is getting a hold of you, tell someone. Tell a friend, a close friend, and ask them to hold you to account. Ask him to to give you a ring every day. Say, how are you going with it? Support them through it. Help them through it. And if a sin still grasps you, go and seek a counsellor. At the end of verse 30, Jesus again connects sexual sins with the place of punishment. That does not mean that everybody who commits sexual sin goes to hell. By God's grace, every sin is forgivable. But if we love the thought of sin and indulge in it, instead of resisting it, We are rejecting God's ways. But if we take our struggles to the Lord, seeking His mercy, He will forgive us and renew us. I put it to you that contentment is the antidote to lust. Paul says in 1 Timothy 6.6, Godliness with contentment is great gain. Not material gain, but spiritual gain. The general command to be content means we should be content with our singleness if that's God's gift. You know, I sometimes hear jokes about why people are not married and I think we sometimes are insensitive. Sometimes it's a person's gift to be single. It's okay. If we are married, it means that we should be content with the spouse that God has given us. I know it's so opposite to our culture. Our culture encourages us to be discontent with many things, including our spouse. Of course, every husband or wife has failings. We have selected hearing. We fail to pick up our clothes. We spill the coffee and sometimes we leave bad smells. Whatever. And it's no sin to notice those flaws, but it is a sin to become discontent with the spouse the Lord has given us. Discontentment with a spouse drives out love and respect for her. Discontentment with what the Lord has given you is actually to distrust in God's providence. For it accuses God of providing the wrong spouse. See, our culture says, get the best partner you can. But as Christians, we should say, hey, hang on a minute, hang on a minute. God has given me this person. God has given me this person. This man or this woman. And then we should be asking, how can we love them more honorably? What can we do for them? How can we be more Christ-like towards them? See, contentment breeds faithfulness and stops the roving eye. I put it to you that most marital problems begin with discontentment and a lustful heart. The cause of lust is not the attractive opposite sex, but an improper response to the attractive opposite sex. The cause of marital discontentment has less to do with our spouse's flaws than it has to do with our own hard-hearted response to those flaws. I don't know whether any of you have ever seen the Mary Poppins movie. It's one of my favourite movies, Mary Poppins movie. And early in the movie, she pulls out this measuring tape and she measures the little boy and the little girl and she sort of lists their faults. And then she measures her own status And it says on the tape, Mary Poppins, practically perfect in every way. Well, we know there is no perfect Mary Poppins. And there's no perfect woman. There's no perfect man. We know that. Every one of us is flawed from head to heart to hands. Every potential partner is a sinner. And no two sinners are perfectly compatible. Sometimes people ask me the question, what are the two biggest causes of trouble in a marriage? Some people say, oh, it's money. Some people say it's sex. Some say, oh, it's the in-laws. Others say to me that it's lack of communication. Personally, I think the two biggest causes of marital strife are the husband and the wife. That's where it starts. That's the problem. I remember when I was at college, my pastoral care lecturer asked me, "Zudi, do you, do you still love Trudy? I thought, has he seen something in me that I should be aware of? I was a bit worried about the question and I thought, what's he asking me that for? Well, before I could offer an answer, he withdrew the question and made it a statement. He said, husbands, you must love your wives. Wives, you must love your husbands. It's not a choice. It's not a choice. I use it always when I do premarital counseling. It's never about whether we still love our spouse We must love. That is God's command. Don't focus on the things that are all wrong with your spouse. And we could list heaps of them. I'm sure we can. But don't focus on them. Love her. Love Him. Focus on the things you love about them. And if you can't think of anything, think a bit harder and a bit longer. And then tell her what you think of her and what you love about her or him. And give God thanks for those things. See, in our Lord's Day, women had few rights. Men could get a divorce at any time. And in our passage, Jesus prohibits the divorce except for unfaithfulness in verses 31 and 32. Jesus says that divorce can drive the divorced woman into adultery. See, Moses permitted divorce; men to divorce their wives if they gave their wives a certificate of divorce. In, in a way, the legislation protected women by giving them a clear right to remarry. And it slowed men down because all of a sudden they couldn't have that woman back again. So there was a sort of a bonus to it, if you like. See, Moses' law permitted divorce, but it also restricted it. Jesus effectively says that such lords had their purpose, but now the bar has been raised. Lifelong faithfulness is the goal. In Matthew 19, Jesus says that our standard should be God's plan for marriage. He created one man and one woman, and He married them. Adam and Eve were married before they were parents and stayed married after their children matured. In marriage, a man and a woman become one flesh. And yes, it certainly includes physical intimacy, but it also means listening to each other. Dreaming great dreams together. Helping out in the kitchen doing the dishes. It means all of those things. The ring, the ring. The ring, the ring. Remember the ring illustration? It's like a fence. It's like a fence. You stay inside and everybody else stays out. And that includes the internet and it includes the, the dirty magazines and everything else that would cause you to lust. Don't go there. Let me close. Adultery is not necessarily the worst than any other sins. But physical adultery usually occurs after much mental adultery. It just doesn't happen. There's usually a progression. To commit adultery, one must think and plan it and persuade oneself that it is justified when it's not. The greatest source of healing in a marriage is the grace of God poured out into our hearts. He is patient and loving towards us despite our sins and flaws. If that were not so, who could stand? And God also graciously forgives our sins and flaws when we truly repent and that includes divorce. It includes divorce. Jesus died for that sin as well. And he brings healing to those lives as well. Can he heal when adultery has been committed? Absolutely. Absolutely. I've witnessed it on occasions. It can happen when the Holy Spirit works together in both hearts reconciling people back to the Lord Jesus Christ and persuades them to forgive just as they have been forgiven. Every now and then we get people knocking at our door whether we do marriages, whether we do weddings. My usual response is, yes, we do weddings, but we do Christian weddings. That's what we do. Sadly, we live in a broken world and sometimes love for Jesus has grown cold in one's heart and when that happens it becomes extremely difficult to repair in a relationship. Is lust knocking at your door? Remember God's grace and providence and pray that His Spirit will help you to resist it Quickly. With his grace, he can build a strong marriage, and with all the faithfulness and contentment that two sinners can know. Perhaps you're still sitting here this morning struggling with the brokenness, adultery, and divorces caused. If you haven't already, get on your knees and ask for forgiveness. If not for yourself, then for your ex. We can pray for our ex. And that the Lord's healing hand would be upon you both. And keep praying for our God is faithful and He's just and He loves to forgive and He loves to heal and He loves to restore. If it were not so, He would not have sent His Son. When Clinton sent me the order of service, he said, pick a song that you would sing at the end of the service for this one so hard to pick a right song for this sort of topic. But I went with nearer, still nearer, Lord to be thine. Sin with its follies, I gladly resign. All of its pleasures, pomp and its pride, give me but Jesus, my Lord crucified. Give me but Jesus, my Lord crucified. When we got our eyes focused on that, then lust won't be too true big a problem. So may the Lord help us heal broken lives and spare us. Let's bow in prayer. Heavenly Father, we are mindful that so many people are affected with the sin of lust and all its consequences. And Father, there may be people here, even here today that are still struggling with that. And we pray, Father, that you would bring healing. Help them to realise that there is forgiveness with you because of your great love to us in the Lord Jesus Christ. Father, we pray too for a blessing upon our marriages, upon our relationships. May they be strong. And Lord, when temptation comes our way, we pray that you would give us eyes only for Jesus and him crucified and risen. In his precious name we pray. Amen.